Greetings, and thank you for joining us for this episode of the Cannabis Community Insider, a podcast featuring conversations with top influencers shaping the cannabis landscape today. I'm your host, Mark Pasakovich, and in my day job, I am a lobbyist and public affairs consultant, and one of my biggest clients is a cannabis company. This experience as an industry lobbyist and insider gives me access to key people and unique insights that I look forward to sharing with you. We bring you inside the cannabis industry and feature a multitude of diverse perspectives and opinions from business leaders, government officials, community stakeholders, and other key people in the fast-moving world of cannabis. The podcast tells the backstories of the developments you see in the news. We answer pressing questions from patients and consumers and explore the latest developments in cannabis business and culture. And by the way, your voice, yes, yours, really matters in determining the future of this podcast. So please don't forget to like us or recommend us or rate us highly, and certainly don't forget to subscribe to the Cannabis Community Insider on whatever platform you use. Don't forget, if you want to be an insider, you got to listen to the insider. So for this episode, we sat down with Connie Moody, who is the Deputy Director of the Illinois Department of Public Health. Uh, If you don't know Connie, you probably should. She is in charge of the medical cannabis program at the health department. She and her team are the ones responsible for screening patient applications and determining eligibility for the program. And I know what you're bound to be thinking right now. Whatever it is, uh, it probably is not good. Uh, Bashing slow and inefficient government services is a very popular American pastime. And certainly this government agency is no different. Every patient who has had to wait months for their medical cannabis card to arrive in the mail is probably nodding in agreement right now. But things aren't always so simple. I sat down with IDPH Deputy Director Moody uh, recently to get her perspective on the state of the medical cannabis program she administers. Uh, We started with her telling me a little bit about her background uh, and her long career at uh, the state of Illinois. So my career in state government really started in budget and finance. Um, I worked for an agency, um, today it's HFS, it used to be public aid. I worked in their budget office and then went to work in the Edgar administration's Office of Management and Budget. I enjoyed that work a lot, but I always thought that there was something more that I wanted to do. And so a position became open at IDPH, at public health, a policy position. And when I took that position, suddenly it was, I knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. 
And so I've worked all throughout the agency. I've worked in the breast and cervical cancer program. I've worked in tobacco prevention and control. I've worked with the Office of Health Protection and then came to this office, the Office of Health Promotion, to work on chronic disease issues. And I think, Mark, that's where you and I, um, our paths first crossed yep. around tobacco prevention and control. Okay. Um, and then it was a very interesting change in my career path when the first Compassionate Use of Medical Cannabis Pilot Program Act was introduced. Our agency at that, in that first bill, was held responsible for everything from um, seed to sale and patients. And I, I analyze a lot of legislation for IDPH. And so I was handed um, the bill and said, here, look through this 250 page bill and tell us what impact it would have on IDPH. And at the time, really no one in state government felt that there would ever be a medical cannabis program in the state. And I said to our director at the time, I said, I think we really need to look at this because there's a real change in the country's attitude around medical cannabis and the use of cannabis for medical purposes. We need to be ready for this in case the bill does pass in Illinois. And so I presented um, to the then governor's office on what impact this would have on IDPH and how we really needed to look at a different model for our state. Um, because IDPH knows nothing about plant health. So why are we charged with overseeing cultivation centers? Um, so that's how we started looking at that bill from the state government perspective. And then as you know, uh, fast forward to today, where there are really three major agencies that each have a role in that program. And so this has really been I, I tell students this all the time, has been one of the most interesting public policy projects that I've had the opportunity of working on in my entire career. So is this all you do now, or do you have other responsibilities? So within the Office of Health Promotion and Medical Cannabis, I have a lot of other responsibilities. My office also has programs for the follow-up on newborn screenings. So every infant in Illinois is tested for a series of genetic and metabolic diseases. My staff handle the follow-up for infants who have positive um, test results, screening test results. We have an array of chronic disease programs, tobacco prevention and control, injury prevention, cancer, diabetes, all within our chronic disease programs. And then we also have an oral health program, a vision and hearing program. Um, so there's really more than enough to do in this office. Um, and then medical cannabis is, of course, a very large chunk of my day. The taxpayers ought to give you a medal. Um, and, I, and from personal experience, I know that um, you're always working. You, you, even if you're not like bringing a, a folder home, which you might be, uh, or your laptop or whatever, you're also carrying a full head of stuff that sort of never is not there. Um, so I think it's useful for people to understand here's what all this person does. He's not just sitting there waiting for your phone call about where your card is. You know, as much as that would be wonderful, that's just not the way it works. When you got this job, 
uh, or when this became a part of your responsibilities. Uh, you know, cannabis is sort of an interesting thing, right? It's, as you said, the attitudes are changing nationwide. Uh, and, you know, I think we've come a long way from sort of stoner hippie uh, days as the typical image. Uh, and in fact, you know, what's interesting is that older adults are the fastest growing segment of the medical cannabis yes, they are. population. So uh, it's definitely changing. But what was it like with your friends and family? Like, and maybe still is. And, you know, obviously personal family conversations are personal. But give me a sense of sort of how people are like, wow, she does this. So I like to tell the story of how I'm a child of the 80s. So the Nancy Reagan just say no generation. And so this was definitely a, um, a left turn in terms of um, the work that I usually do, especially as a public health professional, because we focus on um, tobacco prevention and control and making sure that um, youth are not exposed to tobacco. So this um, really was a, a very different um, subject matter area. Um, I think that my, my friends and family were um, a little bit surprised that I wanted to t dip my toe in this area, especially my children. <laughs> so when I started this work, they were both high school students and um, they said to me, oh, mom, please don't tell any of our friends what we do because we don't want, <laughs> we don't want anybody to know that, that you deal in, in cannabis. And, uh, and I'm like, well, I'm not dealing in cannabis. The reality is I'm setting policy for the state. And what I've really come to learn is just how important this opportunity to access medical cannabis is for patients. Um, the stories that I hear, the patients that I speak to, and the change that it has made um, in their lives and in their um, ability to um, conduct their activities of daily living or to have a, to re-enter the workforce have been really tremendous. And so I've really come to appreciate that there is a place for medical cannabis um, as a therapy for patients who um, have a debilitating condition. Um, this is especially true for children. Um, the, the families that I've spoken to, children who have um, seizure disorders, um, medical cannabis has just had an amazing impact on their lives. Now, we know that this is all very anecdotal um, and we speak to a lot of patients and so one of the things that I try to reinforce when I speak to policymakers or to even to just families, I try and reinforce that they need to be talking to their leaders, um, their senators, their representatives at the federal level, their congressmen and women um, to talk, tell their stories um, because we really need a lot more research around cannabis to see um, what scientifically evidence-based what benefit does this product have on health conditions? So let's turn to the uh, program itself. Um, and uh, it, I guess, how's it going? And especially since uh, the opioid program was added and the law was changed, uh, Governor Rahner signed the bill and, uh, during the summer. Um, how are things going? Are you busier? Are you seeing an uptick in demand? Is, is, are the predictions true that there will be, you know, growing demand uh, um, 
as part of this opioid program and you know eliminating background checks and all that kind of stuff. So I, I actually took a look at the data in anticipation of speaking to you today and it's very telling that we are seeing quite an uptick in applications for both our what I call the traditional medical cannabis program or MCPP and also the opioid alternative pilot program the OAPP so when I look at the data for the last quarter of 2018 so that would be October through December and compare that to the previous year in 2017 we have seen almost a 50% increase in the number of applications that are submitted by patients. Mm -hmm. And that is before the provisional um, registration component was implemented. Right now we receive about 550 applications per week for our medical cannabis program. Um, some weeks that's been as high as 800 applications. Until we started with provisional registrations in February, about 80% of those applications were in paper instead of online applications. And that was really, um, that is um, burdensome administratively for our staff because that means that we have to scan in every single document that comes as part of that application package. Um, and then the flip side of that is that more than 70% of our applications have some sort of an error in them. And so my staff become more or less case managers mm -hmm. as they try and help that patient understand what's missing from their application, what documentation they have to submit to correct that error so we can move them along the process to ultimately become a registered medical cannabis patient. And when you are doing those kinds of things, when your ta staff is doing those kinds of things, um, you know, the purpose is to help them get on the program. It's not really to keep them off the program. We're not making those kinds of judgments, or, uh, right? So it's, it's really about helping people and doing whatever you can within the law. Exactly, exactly. Because if a physician has determined that the patient has a, one of the 41 debilitating medical conditions that allows them to participate in the program, then we're not making a judgment on whether or not they're eligible or deemed worthy. If they have the physician certification, um, then that is, we accept that because the, it is really the physician who has the relationship with the patient who knows that this is an appropriate course of treatment for them. Where we come in then is making sure that the patient is, um, fits into the right age category. Are they residents of Illinois? Um, do they have a, a correct, um, do they have proof of residency? Do they have proof of their identity? Do they meet the requirements in terms of, um, do they have a driver's license or a current driver's license or a state ID? So it becomes more of checking those administrative boxes that are specified in the law. Have they paid their fee? Mm -hmm. Have they paid the right fee? Did they submit a check with their or a, did they um, pay with a credit card and, and has that check bounced perhaps? So those are all the pieces that my staff are responsible for reviewing and approving. So within that context, let's just, um, as I mentioned to you, we asked people who are members of the Illinois medical cannabis community mm -hmm. online 
um, about the kinds of questions uh, that they've had. And so it's a great segue from what we just talked about. Um, obviously, you know, in days past, big complaint was wait times, right? I think everybody thought, you know, maybe you just have hundreds of people sitting here um, working on applications. And so uh, what I wanted to ask you about is just sort of some background in terms of, you know, how much staff you have. For, uh, do you think, given this new program and new demand, do you have enough staff or would you like to see more? Uh, and the ultimate question uh, is, are wait times even a thing anymore now that we have provisional access? How does that, how's it working on the back end for you? The, so I think that provisional access um, was such a, a major quality improvement to happen for our program because it does provide access to medical cannabis for the patient while our staff are processing applications. And as you know, the law gives IDPH up to 90 days to process an application from the time that we receive it. Um, and that, we don't use that whole 90 days, um, but as the volume of applications continue to increase, and I, I you know, talked to you about the 50 plus percent yeah. um, increase in volume that we're seeing, that provisional access is, is really important to ensuring that people can begin their treatment with medical cannabis while they're waiting and going through that process. So that's been very beneficial. Um, right now we have a staff of, we have staff of 14 and 11 of those are processing applications. So sort of caseworkers, as you call them. Exactly, okay. exactly. And they do everything from um, scanning applications, if we get a paper application, to answering phones, to reviewing documentation, to writing letters to patients that say, you didn't send us a, a the correct photo, or you forgot to include your check, or you sent us a, an expired driver's license. Um, and so they are responsible for every aspect of that processing. And like I said, when we receive a paper application, that takes much longer. Yep. Um, because we're not just doing the reviewing, but we're actually doing the scanning and, and the data entry for those applications. So it's very helpful for us um, with provisional access. As you know, you must the patient must submit an application online to receive that provisional access. And once they do that and they pay their fee, then the following day, so within 24 hours, they receive their provisional registration card that they can download from, their, from our web portal. They can take that to a dispensary and they can immediately begin um, purchasing medical cannabis. So that's, that's really been such a quality improvement for our program. So wait times aren't really a thing as much anymore unless it's a paper application. That is correct. And okay. every time we talk to patients, we stress, if you would like to take advantage of the provisional access to dispensaries, you need to submit an online application. Now, for many of our patients, they don't have access to a computer. Um, or they don't know how to scan in a document or upload documents. So or they don't have an email address. Or, right. So we encourage those patients to either visit one of our local health departments. We have 17 local health departments that are providing free 
um, application assistance in their communities. Those health departments are listed on the department's website. And they can also go and see um, their dispensary. Um, most of the dispensaries in Illinois are also very willing to help patients through the application process. Um, so those have been um, real um, benefits in terms of partnerships that we have established in terms of helping patients um, have an easier time of submitting that online application. This just brings a question to mind about reaching out to you. Like if a patient has, a, you know, an applicant has a question or, you know, is there, what's the easiest in terms of like making your life easier as the department and as the team? Uh, and at the same time, sort of, you know, we understand patients are eager to get answers. Um, so, you know, uh, what's the sort of the easiest way, what's the most efficient way to get an answer? That's a really good question. The, we do have two email boxes, one for the traditional medical cannabis program and one for the opioid program um, that provide an opportunity for patients and their caregivers, their family to email us and ask questions. That is really the most efficient way because we can, any one of us can answer those questions. Now we do have an 800 number um, and unfortunately we, that 800 number is flooded with calls every day. Some days we have 250 to 300 calls. Wow. Yes. And so most of those calls are for patients who want to know, I submitted my application and what is my status? Unfortunately, every time we answer a call like that, um, it, we have to stop processing. We have to look up the patient's application. We have to um, make a judgment call on where they are at at the process and answer questions. And very often those, those questions from the patient then lead us down the rabbit hole into a lot of other questions. So right. those calls, a status call could be, you know, a minute long, but it turns out to be 15 or 20 minutes. And that clogs up our phone lines and we are constantly hearing from patients that they wish that we had more um, reception staff so we could answer questions. Yeah, they want you to have a call center. Exactly. Um, we don't have the staff to do that. Um, and what I tell patients and when I'm doing presentations for dispensaries and local health departments, I always ask folks, we have 90 days to process an application. You will hear from us if there's something wrong with your application and we need more information. Until um, you have, you're at about the 45 or, or 50 day mark, please don't reach out to us and ask us where your application is um, because we are processing, we're trying to put all of our efforts into processing quickly um, so we really appreciate if folks will wait with those calls or even those emails. Now, I do believe that provisional access is going to make, is going to reduce that volume because again, when a patient is able to apply online the following day, they will get their provisional registration and so that should alleviate and, and reduce some of these um, some of this anxiety that patients had. Oh, I mailed you my application and I've never heard from you. Well, it's, it's because we're processing huge quantities of applications. 
We don't want to ignore patients. We certainly want to be available and provide good customer service, but the volume has just overwhelmed us. A lot of folks, you know, have um, uh, questions that they go to their doctor with. Um, and of course, as we know, a doctor has to certify uh, before a patient can um, uh, become eligible. Uh, and I think there's a lot of frustration. There are a lot of hospital systems that are sort of have a policy of telling their doctors not to engage with patients on this issue. Um, there, uh, you know, and, and there's a full gamut. There are obviously doctors who are making cannabis certification a significant part of their overall practice, and there are others who don't even want to talk about it. Um, but in reality, it's a patient access issue. There's a lot of angst and there are a lot of patients who really see their relationship with physicians as really important. Um, they might be in rural Illinois, so they can't be shopping around for doctors. Um, they might be on um, opioids and uh, you know, they're afraid that they're, if they ask about cannabis, the whole opioid issue might come up and the doctor might be more reluctant to, you know, have them on an addictive prescription. Um, do you see any way of resolving that problem? I mean, it, it, and again, uh, has that been done anywhere else in other states? I mean, has any state said, hey, doctors, you have to be able to give your patients advice on this or, or anything like that. How has that worked and are, you know, and are there solutions? And I guess also, I know that the department is actively working to educate doctors. Could you talk about that? I, I think that one of the um, things that we've already talked about is the federal restriction on cannabis. And so that, I believe, um, is part of some of the concerns that physicians have had around talking to their patients um, about medical cannabis use. We are trying to, here at IDPH, we are trying to do a better job of educating physicians about the program. Because I think that's one of the things that is still um, somewhat of a mystery um, for physicians and healthcare systems. What is this program of which you speak, um, the medical cannabis program or even the opioid alternative pilot program? So we've hosted this spring, uh, or it's not spring yet, unfortunately. We're still in the midst of that's, winter. That's an aspirational goal. Exactly. Um, we've held um, several physician webinars um, specifically about the opioid alternative pilot program. But as part of that webinar, we've also discussed um, the provisional access to medical cannabis that's now part of the traditional program. And I am looking for opportunities to do more of that physician education. Um, next week, I will be speaking to um, at a Grand Rounds seminar for physicians at the University of Chicago Health Systems. Mm -hmm. um, so that I'll be there next week. Um, I'm also speaking to a number of um, opioid coalitions in Illinois, um, which have um, physician membership. Again, educating about the opioid alternative program, educating about the medical cannabis program. I also encourage patients to, to talk to their physicians. Um, some patients um, hesitate to bring up the idea of the use of medical cannabis. In my own 
personal life with family members who have um, debilitating conditions or even um, are in terminal illness stages of their life. Um, I found that being upfront with my family members, immediate physicians, has been um, a good, open, honest conversation. And I've received feedback from, in one situation, I've received feedback from um, my family member's doctor that said, you know, I just don't want to go down this path right now. Let's try something else. But I'm open to revisiting it now mm -hmm. that you've given me this information. We have some resources on our webpage, on the department webpage, for physicians, including um, the National Institute Health on the evidence basis for cannabis for health conditions. And I, I carry that document around with me and share that with physicians whenever I can. So I, I think one of the most important things that we can do is educate. And that is both from the department, from the patient angle, and also from all of our partners out there, our local health departments, our dispensaries, our medical associations. Um, working together, we can do a better job of, of education. We are in the process of working with the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and the University of Iowa to conduct an evaluation of the opioid alternative pilot program. And we are going to be, um, over the next year, surveying physicians to learn more about their attitudes and their beliefs, not only around med cannabis for medical use, but how the opioid alternative pilot program is being embraced, how it's being implemented, what their readiness is, and very importantly for us, what sort of education needs and training needs physicians have. So a year from now, I will have a better idea of how to answer that question. That's actually exciting. Uh, that is, I think there are a lot of folks that want to know what the barriers are. But moving on, another sort of point of access where people have concerns is the VA system. Mm -hmm. uh, as we know, the, uh, the uh, use of cannabis, the possession of cannabis, the sale of cannabis are all uh, federal, uh, illegal under federal law. And so it's harder for a patient getting their care from a federal facility to engage on this topic at all. Are there any tips in terms of how patients might deal with that? if? their primary care is coming from the VA and the VA can't talk about this or facilitate this process. So veterans who are receiving care at a VA facility um, who have one of the 41 debilitating medical conditions um, or even a terminal illness situation, we do have in our rules an exception um, so that that um, veteran does not have to go to a community physician if they can provide us with 12 months worth of medical records from their VA provider um, that shows that they have one of the debilitating conditions. Um, we ask for 12 months because we want to know that that individual is truly in ongoing care through the VA system. Um, and then we work with them to review those medical records and make a determination. Um, so that is um, medical, the medical cannabis program is available um, to veterans who receive care through a VA facility, even though the physician at the VA cannot sign a certification. Um, and interestingly enough, 
I think some of your listeners might be interested that that is also available for the veteran's spouse because ah. some of our um, veterans, their spouses also receive all of their care through a VA facility. And so if that is the situation, then the spouse's medical records can be submitted in the same manner that the veteran's medical records are submitted and we'll review those records, identify the debilitating condition, and so we, we don't want to leave out spouses. That's excellent. So I, I think a lot of people are actually just get frustrated about the VA and don't necessarily aren't, aren't aware that there's a workaround. Mm -hmm. Another question that a lot of patients have is related to their privacy. Um, as, as you know, uh, when you become a patient, that note is made on your driver's license record. Um, so a lot of patients want to know why, uh, rather than, you know, is the government just being nosy? And then there's also some confusion, and I understand you don't run this part, but perhaps you've, get, you've gotten these questions before. Um, is sort of the driver's license the only document that that notation is made on? What if a person gets a non-driving state ID? Uh, is that notation still pop up? How does that work? So the, I want to first uh, assure everyone that the participation in the medical cannabis program or the opioid program is highly confidential. Um, the state um, statute is written in a manner that completely protects that information. So IDPH can, if an employer calls or a university calls or um, um, we get a call from a landlord, we do not reveal ever that that individual is participating in the medical cannabis program unless that patient is on the phone with us and gives us permission to release that information to the caller. Um, there is a notation, as you noted, made on the driver's license. That is also in the statute that the Secretary of State's office receives data from our program when a patient is certified for medical cannabis. Um, the data is also sent to the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program. So Illinois has a Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, as do most states, and there's a notation made in that monitoring program that physicians and um, prescribers of controlled substances review and they can see that that patient is participating in the medical cannabis program. Those are the only two um, places where IDPH provides data to another state agency. Um, so medical cannabis records are not accessible to anyone else outside of the persons in my program who have um, signed confidentiality agreements and are and working in the program. Mm -hmm. So there is a notation made in the driver's license and that's really for the patient's protection mm -hmm. because that is if the patient is, is stopped, for example, for a traffic violation um, when law enforcement runs your driver's license and they see that you are a 
um, certified medical cannabis patient. They can compare that to the registry card that you are supposed to show mm -hmm. because you are supposed to carry that mm -hmm. card on your person whenever you are transporting medical cannabis. And that then gives the protections of the act. Um, so one of the things that we talk about is when to patients when they have a when they wish to apply with their state ID card, but they have a driver's license, they really should be submitting information about their driver's license. Not because anybody's being nosy and wants to take a look at whether or not they're a medical cannabis patient, but the protections of the act are there for their benefit um, if they are driving, if they are transporting medical cannabis. What about additional conditions? Again, a thing that comes up a lot, I'm really suffering, but I'm not on the list. Uh, what can be uh, done? With the leadership change at the department and other things, um, uh, it is within the purview of the director of the department to add uh, uh, additional conditions. So it's within the purview of the executive branch, I should say, because obviously the director does not make that uh, decision in, in a vacuum. Um, but is there any sense, do you know whether there's discussion about ad additional conditions? Um, I, I'm not a doctor. I do think that there are some people who actually ought to be eligible who are not because the name of whatever it is not on the list, but they're suffering. Um, how do we deal with that? So Illinois is um, a little bit different from many states. We have more conditions than any other state, more specific conditions mm -hmm. than any other state in the nation that has a medical cannabis program. And the law provides for a petition period every year between January 1st and 31st for um, patients and physicians to submit petitions to the department to add additional conditions. So we've just closed the 2019 um, open petition period, January 31st, and now the department has um, 180 days to review those petitions that we receive to make decisions. Um, we have a, um, as you noted, a new administration, and I don't know at this point in time um, what approach is going to take. We are, as I mentioned also, conducting this evaluation. Mm. Um, I talked about physicians, but we are also conducting evaluations with patients and with dispensaries because we want to get a better understanding, especially from patients, how they're using medical cannabis. Has it been effective? Um, what sort of experience? What sort of, ha have their attitudes and beliefs changed? Um, so hopefully that will provide us some insight also to um, what um, pro program quality improvements are needed. Um, the addition of the opioid alternative pilot program also opened the medical cannabis program for some new mm -hmm. um, conditions in a way. Mm -hmm. Although they're not specifically identified um, as one of the debilitating conditions, the opioid, um, the way that the opioid statute is written so that either an individual is prescribed an opioid or a physician would have prescribed an opioid for their condition, that opens the door to um, persons with um, chronic pain conditions to try the medical cannabis program to see if it is 
um, of use to them and helpful to them. So again, we'll be looking at that from the evaluation standpoint and hopefully um, by the end of this year, I will have some better ideas um, on how that program is working for persons um, who are trying to reduce their opioid use or avoid it altogether. Well, it was interesting. So I, I think people forget this, that there is an actual mechanism, uh, this you know, appeal, the petition, pro the petition mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the one thing we can say with certainty is that the department does, uh, under the new administration, have to specifically sort of figure out yes or no on things that, that people have requested. So I guess that's just to say that it is on your radar and that is something that the department has not forgotten and does address as a matter of course. Correct, because that is, um, that is a component of the law and so we, we intend to see that through. Okay, well this is all really helpful. I think we can wrap up here. The, the thing that I would ask you is what, what did I not ask you, right? Um, are there, um, I think, you know, sort of the specific tips given on how to, let's say, talk to IDPH, that kind of stuff is really helpful. Are there other sort of thoughts about the program, how to navigate the program, how to navigate the application process that you would share in closing? I think that if, if I want to say anything to patients specifically who are thinking about enrolling in the program and applying, I, I would really like to stress a need to very carefully review the instructions. Um, I mentioned that about 70% of our applications have errors in them. And that is something that we continue to struggle with because folks either don't read instructions carefully or they choose to ignore them. Um, a few areas that we are really seeing problems with um, is the submission of the passport photo. So the photograph that we request is, is not because we want to see um, happy, smiling faces. <laughs> it allows the, because that information is not only printed on the registry card, but it's also transmitted in the case of the opioid program to the dispensary. That's how a dispensary can verify an individual's identity against another photo ID. Mm -hmm. So if we get a good, clear photo, the type that you would use to apply to the federal government for a passport, then it makes it very easy. And, and the, um, it's not as burdensome on a dispensary to try and decide, is this picture that I have of you, Mark, from 25 years ago, is this really you today? And I know that you, um, your listeners can't see this, but I did pull out um, a slide that I use in training mm. that shows photos that we have received recently. Um, so there's a photo of a person in a gym. There's a photo of a person who's um, half naked against a, a six panel door. Um, we received a photograph of a young woman and she sent us um, 18 photos and said, here, you pick the best one. <laughs> and, and that's not what we're asking for. Um, take the time, please, to go to um, the US Postal Service or go to Walgreens or CVS and get a photo taken. Don't, no selfies, please. <laughs> um, many of our dispensaries and our health departments are now setting up photo booth type situations where they can take a good photograph against a plain white background. 
Um, so those entities can help also if you don't want to go down to your local Walgreens, um, but we need a good, clear photo. The other area that I think we're seeing um, some confusion around is the law prohibits persons with commercial driver's licenses and school bus permits from participating in the program. And we have had um, quite a rash of recent applications where the patient has indicated that um, they do not have a CDL and then when we conduct a check against the driver's license, the Secretary of State driver's license database, it turns out they do have a mm. commercial driver's license. And we have to deny those patients because the law says you cannot have a CDL or a school bus permit and participate in the medical cannabis program. So if patients um, have a CDL on their license, but they are not using that, um, then please go to the Secretary of State's office and have that removed from your driver's license before you apply. Because we will find out, um, and then we'll have to deny your application, and then um, you lose that application fee. We don't want to see that happen. We would rather help patients on the front end um, be compliant with the rules and regs so that they can very smoothly and quickly transition through the application process. All right, excellent. Connie, thank you so much for your time today, your time, your patience, uh, and, and your passion for helping the folks who are looking for your help. It's really appreciated. I want you to know that. Excellent. Well, thanks for speaking with me today, Mark. Thank you. Uh, all right. Well, thanks again to Connie Moody, uh, Deputy Director at the Illinois Department of Public Health, for taking time to talk with us uh, and to answer some of our community's questions. And something tells me, uh, given Connie's position, this is not the last time we're going to talk with her. So thank you, Connie, uh, for all you do, uh, and we'll plan to check in with you again soon. And many thanks to our listeners. If you like what you hear, please don't forget to give this podcast a positive review to like us or to give us five stars or to recommend us and comment. Um, and definitely don't forget to subscribe to the Cannabis Community Insider on whatever podcast platform you use. We are working on new episodes all the time uh, and we hope you'll join us again. And don't forget, if you want to be an insider, you have to listen to the insider. Thanks and talk to you soon.